Christmas is golden, isn't it? I've been enjoying the last few seconds, few minutes. <coughs> it's a comforting fact to realize that the universe we live in is run according to law and not according to chance. The laws that never have been and never can be canceled. Laws that can never be broken with impunity. Laws that regulate and govern and guide every aspect and feature of physical life. Now this is also true spiritually. The fact that there are laws which govern our spiritual well-being. As the scriptures teach that no man is saved by grace and not by law, we understand that, but the doctrine of God's grace in no way militates or mitigates against the fact that there are these spiritual laws by which man regulates his life or he suffers the consequences. The consequences of violating these spiritual laws may be eternal, or the temporary loss of joy or peace. But mark it down very accurately that no man, no one violates the laws of God that does not some way, somehow, somewhere, possess and inherit the consequences. Now Peter here in our text this morning, he presents to us in a very specific yet brief way the thought that I wish to suggest to you today. And that is that there are spiritual laws by which we are to govern our lives and by which God governs his dealings with us. There are six of them found in the six verses of our text. And so let me read our text and then we'll discuss it a little bit. 1 Peter 5, verse 6-11. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, <clears throat> casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, like a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accompanied, are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. <coughs> but the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory of Christ Jesus, by Christ Jesus, after that you've suffered a while, he'll make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here Peter lays out the laws by which we're to govern our lives. There's six of them. I got them written on the board over there in case I you get lost in what I say up here. <coughs> now, the intent of this lesson is not to elaborate in depth on any of these points 
We don't have the time to discuss these laws to any great depth, but I would like to whet your appetite for future study. And so we're just going to deal with the obvious and the large uh, uh, lesson this morning of these laws. We're going to deal with six laws that Peter presents. He starts out in verse 6 with the law of humility. He says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. And he tells you why. That he may exalt you in due time. Now so there is an imperative. It's a command. It's a law. Peter's not making a, a, a good suggestion, but rather stating a law. The law of humility. This is the principle by which life is regulated. All facets of life are regulated based on humility, on this law. This law of humility is taught over and over again in the New Testament. I'm sure that when Peter said things like this, that he wrote here in the text, that the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes were always in his mind. For running throughout all of the teachings in the uh, of the twelve was the keynote of humility. Jesus said the very at the very beginning, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, as he spoke of humility, humbling oneself. Matthew 5 and verse 3. And he also said at the end of his sermon, if any man would become great, he must become the servant of all. Position again of humility. Matthew 20, verse 26 and 27. Throughout all of his ministry, uh, his teaching centered in the great law of humility. The word humble denotes subjection as before a king. Men of old would bow beneath the hand of the king, which held the king's scepter. And that signified his humility or subjection to the king. That he is ready to go where the king sends him and even forfeit his life in service. Now, <clears throat> this mighty hand of God that the text mentions is not only the hand of rulership, but the hand of provident provision. In Exodus 13 and verse 9, we read about that hand. It says, With a strong hand Jehovah brought thee out of Egypt. And Deuteronomy 3 and verse 24, God said he had preserved Israel in the wilderness by a mighty hand. And again and again and again throughout the passages of the Bible, God revealed his hand of rulership and provision for mankind. So we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God as servants and also as those who are protected and provided for by this mighty king. And then in verse 7, Peter presents the law of serenity in God, a serene spirit. He says, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Uh, serenity denotes peace. 
Uh, a lot of times peace is sought without humility. Peace cannot be found without humility. It's just not there. Humility is the bedrock from which peace can be had. Peace is the result of humility. Peter says you're to cast all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for your souls. I like some of the other translations that says, for he cares for you affectionately, and he cares about you watchfully. That's the Amplified New Testament translation. In Matthew 6, verse 25 through 34, Jesus began his ministry by teaching this profound law uh, of serenity. God, in this uh, context, Jesus uh, says that God prepares the ground and the seed to feed the birds. He makes their winter beds in the south. Each single lily arrayed greater than even Solomon's beauty. And then Jesus ends with these cutting words in view of that fact. How much greater are ye than they? That's how God cares for us. Greater than even the birds and, uh, and the lilies. And so Jesus said, How much greater are ye than they, O ye of little faith? Now Jesus is not teaching not to plan for tomorrow, that's not his point, but rather not to be anxious for tomorrow. Now it's not wrong to take thought for tomorrow. James says that in James 4, verse 13 through 15. He says, If the Lord wills, we will do thus and so. So it's not wrong to take thought for tomorrow uh, because he is the Lord of all the tomorrows of our life. He's the Lord of tomorrows. You bring him into your plans and that cancels anxiety because you'll accept the Lord's will knowing that he rules this world. You won't have any fears. You won't have any uh, disappointments because you'll know that whatever happens, happens Maybe to teach you a lesson. Maybe God is chastening you according to Hebrews 12 and verse 5. <coughs> the writer says there that whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son. And so uh, the man of God is one who recognizes this law of serenity. He lays back in pure understanding that God is in control and he has nothing to fear. And that's what Romans 8, verse 31 says. Since God is for us, and He is, who or what should be against us? Quite a question. And so it's not wrong to have anxieties uh, because I'm to cast all my anxieties on Him. It's not wrong to have them, it's wrong to keep them. That verse says, I'm to give them to him. And so Peter says, cast all your anxieties on anxieties on him, <clears throat> for he cares for you. 
We have anxieties and they're to be turned over to the Lord. Why? For two reasons. Number one, He cares for you. And number two, He's Lord of tomorrows. Uh, <clears throat> the best antidote I know for anxiety, again, is Romans 8, verse 31 through 39. We don't have time to read it, but that begins in verse 31 with the fact that God is for us. And then it begins to lay out and explain to what degree God is for us. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How should we not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who's going to charge God's elect with sin? Don't you know Christ died for the sinner? So, uh, Paul's conclusion, of course, is it covers about this, the spectrum of all of life. He says, whether life or death, or things present or things to come, or height or depth, and he goes on with his description, that any other creature shall not be able to separate us from the love of God is found in Christ Jesus. And so we're more than conquerors, as he said in Romans 8, through him that loved us and gave himself for us. So God is able, uh, and anxieties and care, God is able and anxious to care for your souls. So I can look at life not knowing what my future holds, but knowing who holds my future. And there is the difference. Number three talks about, Peter talks, presents the law of Christian vigilance. Being watchful is the idea. Vigil, watchful. He says in verse 8, be sober, be watchful. And here's why. Your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. <coughs> it is ironic that the only lion that devours is the one that has received the death stroke. That's the only man-eating lion in the world uh, because his, uh, he's wounded and he knows his wound is bringing about death. And so he's uh, he slowed down and coat no longer can he catch the zebra and the heart, but slow-footed man. The devil has received the death stroke and now in his frenzy, he seeks to devour slow-footed man. Hebrews 2, verse 14 through 15. For as much then as the children, that's you and me, are partakers of flesh and blood, Jesus also himself uh, 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 likewise took part of the same. He took part of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them uh, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so he's the deliverer, he's the one that brought uh, the final uh, victory over the devil. Uh, 
And the devil knows that he has but a short time. You remember when Jesus sailed across the Sea of Galilee, he stepped out of the boat and immediately there was a man named Legion because he was possessed with many demons. And he come crying out to Jesus, What? Have you come to torment us before our time? Thou Jesus, thou Son of God. There was the devil through his cohorts, the demons, speaking of the fact that he is the, the Son of God, that his name's Jesus, that he has authority over them, and they were shocked, thinking that he had come to destroy them before their time. The devil's not all powerful. The Lord Jesus Christ is. The devil is allowed because you and I have got to make a choice who we want as our father. And so the devil is slowed down and can no longer catch the zebra in the heart, but slow-footed man. He's received the death stroke as we saw here uh, in Hebrews 2. And in Revelation 12, uh, he made the mistake in that symbolic vision of chasing the Son of God into heaven. And the angels cast him out and back to the earth. And there was a pronouncement to those living on the earth, that's you and me, woe unto the earth, for he's come down having great wrath. He knows he has but a short time. He's very wrathful. He's very deceiving and destructive. And then it makes a statement in verse 11 that's astounding. It says, And they, those who survived, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. And there's a threefold picture of success. Thomas Jefferson once stated, eternal vigilance is the price of victory, and it is. If we would be free, we must be soberly watchful. It's, must be soberly watchful and here's why Satan comes at us when we're not watchful or in a way that we're not watching one of the two Satan gets us many times in our immaturity because we're looking in the wrong direction for his attack and so he says being sober uh, it uh, equips us to see life as it really is This is a true fact because God not only demands that I trust Him, but that I serve Him. Uh, that's always, uh, uh, that I always be ready unto every good work. That's a law. And so the person who is not sober and watchful, he bears the consequences. Again, it may be temporal or it may be eternal but he bears the consequences. Number four, the law of Christian resistance. 
stated in verse 9. Peter says, Whom withstand steadfast in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are accomplished in your brethren who are in the world. And so I'm to present, resist the devil steadfastly, uh, not sporadically or spasmodically, but steadfastly. That's how long. And in your faith, that's where we're withstanding. Not in my intellect, not in my wisdom, not in my power, not in my ability, but in my faith. Faith is the shield of the soul, Ephesians 6 verse 16 says. When all the armor is put on the, on the body, the shield is put on the arm in front of it all. I've noticed that every time I've fallen, it's been because of unbelief. In other words, weak in faith. The shield of faith never fails to quench all the fiery darts of the devil. In 1 John 5 and verse 4, John states that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. In James 4 and verse 7, the admonition is to submit or humble yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now he won't leave permanently because he will return again and again and again. But you resist him with your faith. In Matthew 4, we have a picture of the temptation of Jesus on that mountain. Three times Satan tried to get Jesus, and three times Jesus said, It is written, it is written, it is written. <coughs> and the third time, uh, it says in Luke 4, verse 13, The devil departed for a season. He couldn't withstand the word of God, so he left. But for a season, he's coming back. And so the devil fled away. And you can see him licking his wounds because he got whooped. He got himself a new strategy, some new helpers, and he came back again in a different way than he had been there before. Because he's, uh, because he's very smart, he's shrewd, he's tricky, but he is not omnipotent. Jesus is omnipotent. And he's the one in whom we have our faith. So when I hold up the shield of faith, I hold up Jesus. He's already proven by a cross and an empty tomb that he's one. So when we resist the devil steadfast in our faith, we've won. That's the law of Christian resistance. Number five is the law of Christian endurance presented in verse 10. And the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after that you suffered a while, shall himself per perfect, establish, and strengthen, and settle you. Endurance, that's a law. You endure what life offers to you. James 5 and verse 11. 
James says, Behold, we call them blessed that endured. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord. Not the beginning. Uh, how that the Lord is full of pity, and He's very merciful. <clears throat> now Job, in the midst of his trials, was one big black question mark. Why? He doubted God. He doubted God's love. He doubted God's control of his life. He doubted a lot of things that he shouldn't have doubted. And God let him doubt it. And finally, Job cast all of his anxieties on God. And he endured all those trials that was on him. And he got himself twice richer than he had ever been before. But it was after the trials and the sufferings, the ones that you and I face. But I want you to listen carefully to what I'm going to say about suffering. If suffering causes me to love Jesus a little bit more, then suffering is my best friend. If suffering drives me to my knees, in submission and in honor, in trusting in God, then suffering is my best friend. If suffering matures me and makes me to be more like Jesus, then suffering is my best friend. <coughs> One of the most precious doctrines found in the Bible is that suffering is the servant of the Christian. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17, For our light afflictions, Paul says, is but for a moment. It works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So suffering serves us if we endure. James says in James 1 verse 2 through 4, We call him blessed that endures. He starts out, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have its perfect work. <clears throat> Did you know that psychology has finally come around in acknowledging this fact? Finally, they're not trying to relieve man of suffering, but to get man to benefit from his suffering. A fact stated 2,000 years ago. And we finally got smart enough to realize what it stated 2,000 years ago. So it's a law, the law of endurance. It's only by trials that we discover the great truths upon which life is founded. Uh, an illustration, if a strong wind blows on a candle, it blows it out. But what happens when that same strong wind blows over a bed of charcoals? You see, that's what the church is, is a bed of charcoals. We gather together and worship and praise and learn and grow and develop. The church is a bed of charcoals. But that little candle out there by itself, the strong winds of life will blow it out. What happens it burns with a brighter flame than ever before, that bed of charcoals. And that's what the church is. 
a bed of charcoal. That's exactly what suffering is intended by God to do. And so we need to thank God when we fall into manifold temptations and trials. I'd like to read you a poem that speaks of the suffrage that man faces in life. This poet wrote uh, the cry of man's anguish went up to God. Lord, take away pain. The shadow that darkens the world thou hast made, that close coiling chain, that, stra uh, that strangles the heart, the burdens that weigh on wings that would soar. Lord, take away pain from the world that it love thee the more. Then answered the Lord to the cry of the world, Shall I take away pain, and with it the power of the soul to endure, made strong by the strain? Shall I take away pity that knits heart to heart and sacrifice high? Will you lose all your heroes that lift from the fires white brows to the sky? Shall I take away love that redeems with a price and smiles with your loss? Can you spare from your lives that would cling unto mine the Christ on his cross? And then Peter presents the sixth law that governs our lives and God's dealing with us, and that's the law of Christian reverence. He says in verse 11, To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dominion is lordship. Forever and ever actually means unto the ages of the ages. And so to him be the lordship unto the ages of the ages. So in the midst of humility, serenity, uh, vigilance, resistance, endurance, in the midst of all of God's strengthening of me, I'm led to know one thing. He's Lord and he cares for me. Well, that's the end of the sermon. But we're always anxious in a godly way that those that are troubled uh, be eased and that those that are lost be saved and that those that are away and therefore lost be regained again. You know, the only reason that Christ died is that men might be saved. The only reason the church exists is that men and women might be saved. The only reason the earth spins on its axis and revolves around the sun is that men might come to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and be saved. And so, we beg of you to come this day while we stand and sing our closing song. There's a royal banner given for display to the soldiers of the king. As an ensign fair we lifted up today, all his ransomed ones we sing. Marching on and on, marching on and on, for Christ held everything, but everything was lost for the king.
marching on, on, marching on, and on. For Christ count everything but love.